Good evening. So over the course of this retreat so far, we've been cultivating this quality of metta, of kindness or goodwill, pretty intensively. And right from opening night, I talked about orienting to the three refuges and how we can think of metta as one aspect of that refuge, the aspiration to create a sense of sanctuary, somewhere where we can live with ease. And as we've seen in the mornings, the morning chant, we can think of metta as one of the four divine abidings. And we chant, I will abide, pervading one quarter with a heart imbued with loving kindness. So this sense of abiding, of dwelling, of resting at ease and at home is a very powerful aspect of metta. And one other aspect of it that I find curious is that even though it has this sense of ease, most of us don't stay home all the time. So you might have noticed that in your own practice so far, not wanting to make too many assumptions, but I'm guessing that probably, maybe, perhaps I should check, has anybody spent the entire time from when you arrived to now abiding with a heart imbued with metta. (laughs) Phew. So it's not just me. And some of you may have found yourselves in states that were pretty far from divine at times. And so I can't emphasize enough just how normal, how natural, how expected this is no matter what kind of meditation practice we're doing, at some point we will run into challenges. Metaphorically, we'll find ourselves in rough terrain. And at these times, we really need the support of our mindfulness practice. So as Oren talked about last night, we also are invited to bring awareness, to bring mindfulness to our hearts and our minds. And in the classical text on insight, known as the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, mindfulness of mind is the third of these four foundations. And here the Buddha asks us to look very directly at our own hearts and minds with the same attitude of kind curiosity, of befriending to whatever is happening there too. And just to be clear, I think we've touched into this before, but the mindfulness of mind, mind in this context, has a broader meaning than the term mind might suggest in English. So it includes our emotions as well as our thoughts. So for this reason, I often prefer to translate it as heart-mind, to bring in this sense of connection with our emotions and also with the body, because the heart is the center of the body. And as we all know, our emotions affect our bodies, our bodies affect our emotions, and vice versa. So with mindfulness of the mind, we're really invited to pay attention to our thoughts and our emotions and our moods and our mind states, the full range of our mental activity. And for clarity, by moods, I mean those emotions that perhaps seem to hang around for longer than just... Um, more fleeting emotions. 
those that are there in the background and coloring our experience of the world. So, for example, we can talk about being in a blue mood and that sense of perhaps a composite of different kinds of emotions like sadness or grief, perhaps tinges of anxiety or despair. So that's the one way of thinking of moods. And then mind states I use to refer to qualities of mind that perhaps don't have a specific emotional component, but they are identifiable aspects of our mental experience. So for example, just to name a few qualities that I think of as mind states, interest, or calm, or alertness, or clarity, engagement, or presence, or openness. They're not specifically emotions, but they're not really thoughts either, so they just are more mental qualities. So one simple and direct way for beginning to explore the mind, if you are not familiar with this, as a foundation of mindfulness. Uh, For myself, I like to use uh, three questions just to drop into uh, experience just whenever I remember or if it feels like something particular is going on. I'm not sure what it is. So the first question is just to ask what's happening in the body right now? So you can do that right now. Just bring your awareness to your physical experience and to notice any sensations in the body now. And in the same way, we can ask what's present in the heart-mind, in my emotional and mental experience. So again, right now, you might like just to check thoughts, Emotions, moods, or mind states. What's present? And then the third question is to ask, how am I relating to this experience? What's the attitude in the mind about whatever is going on? So with this question, we zoom out a bit, and we might start to notice if there's any sort of underlying attitude to that experience. Quite often we notice some kind of resistance, not liking, not wanting, wishing it wasn't here, or perhaps more the opposite. Yes, this is good, stick around, last longer. So this third question, what's the attitude in the mind? How am I relating to my experience? Can reveal perhaps some underlying energy that's shaping our practice. And often these are sort of in our peripheral vision, so we don't quite see them. But this push towards um, not wanting is a, perhaps a subtle form of ill will. And in the same way, the pull towards wanting experience is a subtle form of greed. So those of you who are familiar with the Buddha's teachings, you might recognize in there that the Buddha... Um, asked us to be particularly on the lookout for a set of five challenging mental qualities that really get in the way of our practice. And these five qualities are known as the five hindrances. And I'll explain what they are in a little bit more detail soon, but to begin with, even if you've never heard of these hindrances before, when I list them, chances are that you'll recognize at least one of them. 
So I'll read them quite slowly. And again, you might just like to check. Some of them might sound quite familiar. So the first one is sensual desire. The second is ill will or aversion. The third is sloth and torpor. The fourth is restlessness and worry. And the fifth is skeptical doubt. So these five are known as hindrances because they get in the way of our capacity to cultivate kindness and to see clearly. And not only that, but they have the potential to lead to harm, to harm for ourselves and for others too. So the Buddha talked about them as overwhelming awareness and weakening discernment. And when we're weak in discernment, he says it's impossible to understand what is for one's own benefit, to understand what is for the benefit of others, and to understand what is for the benefit of both. So it's uh, common sense, pretty obvious, that if we don't understand what's for our own and others' benefit, we're going to have a hard time cultivating metta. So we really need to learn how to recognize these hindrances, how to help them release so that there's literally more room in the heart and the mind for the Brahma-Vahara qualities to flourish. So first we need to be able to recognize them. And to recognize them sooner rather than later because the more entrenched they get, usually the harder they are to release. So the first of these hindrances of sensual desire, it really refers to any form of greed any sort of compulsive wanting energy in the mind. And when we're in the grip of that desire, our seeing is colored by it. So in English, for example, we talk about seeing the world through rose-tinted spectacles. We only see what we want to see, what we like, what we think is going to bring us lasting happiness. And this is a setup for disappointment because Everything changes, and if all of our energy is going into chasing after that next hit of pleasantness, it's not good for our own welfare or for those around us. Because when we're blinded by greed, we often we stop seeing other people as fellow human beings. And just to say that this uh, word greed, you know, it sounds quite extreme, and we might think, well, you know, there's things I want, but I don't. I wouldn't say I'm greedy, but this hindrance of sensual desire, it really covers a whole spectrum of wanting, from the most intense craving through to just the slightest trace of preference for something, movement of the mind towards something. And sometimes we see this coming out on retreat when we're perhaps as a reaction to the renunciation, to the simplicity that we're invited into here. We're invited to accept conditions as we find them in the spirit of generosity that they're offered with. And sometimes this letting go of preferences can stir up this hindrance of sense desire. We might find ourselves fixating on little things that in our ordinary lives we might not pay much attention to. So just as a simple example, more or less hypothetical example, 
of a yogi who may or may not have some resemblance to someone sitting up here, but perhaps carrot cake is served at lunchtime. And this yogi notices quite a lot of, hmm, good, wanting, wanting. And quite a lot of mental energy going into wondering, is it going to be enough for everyone to have a second piece? And at what point should I get up to get that second piece? And when I get up there to think, I wonder if I could take a third piece, just in case I don't serve dessert again for a few days. And then, but if I do, where am I going to store it? Because if I put it in the fridge with my name on it, I'm going to be the three pieces of cake yogi for the rest of the retreat. And all of this energy goes into working out how can I manipulate my way through desire. And this is a very classic example of confusing what we want with what we need. And it doesn't happen only in relation to food. Because here on retreat, all of our basic needs are met or even surpassed. And yet somehow we can notice how our energy goes into trying to make the external environment just a little bit better for ourselves. I used to be a retreat manager here at IMS and also other places around the world. And I've been a yogi myself. So I'm pretty familiar with that voice that has this confusion between wanting and needing. It's that voice that says, if only my room was just a little bit warmer, then I'd be happy. If only I could find a softer meditation cushion, then I'd be happy. If I didn't have to wait so long for a shower, then I'd be happy. If only they'd serve ice cream with desserts, then I'd be happy. And there's always something. It's just, if only, if only, goes on and on. But if we can learn to recognize that and zoom out a bit, oh, this is sense desire. It's just a moment of greed. In that moment of recognition, we're not caught in it anymore. And this moment is a moment of freedom. It's a foretaste of the deeper and the more sustained freedom that all of this practice is aiming towards. And I do want to be clear here that when we talk about sense, desire, and restraint, the Buddha's not saying we, we should never enjoy anything or that we should try to avoid pleasant experiences when they do come up. What we're being asked to pay attention to is our relationship to those experiences to see are we getting caught in them in some way. So with the cake example, if I can take a piece of carrot cake, eat it mindfully, be aware of the pleasant experiences, fine. On the other hand, if I'm compulsively going back for a second or a third piece, then there might be something to pay attention to. So this first uh, hindrance is the moving towards. The second hindrance of ill will is the moving away from, and it refers to any kind of not wanting in the mind. So it includes hatred and aversion and fear and anger, particularly anger, because once again, when the mind is agitated by anger, we can't see clearly. So in English, we talk about being blind with rage. This is an easy metaphor to understand. And probably all of us have had this direct experience of being so overtaken by anger that we literally weren't in our right minds. We said or did things that caused harm to ourselves and to others. And this is a stronger form of ill will. 
But again, this hindrance refers to a whole spectrum from full-blown rage right through to the most subtle trace of aversion, any form of resistance or not wanting. And on retreat, it can often show up in the form of judging mind. I don't know if you've noticed that, but we can get in these states where we judge ourselves, we judge our practice, we judge each other, we judge the teachers, we judge anything that moves. And it can be quite shocking sometimes just to see how much mental energy gets absorbed by this judging mind. And then often we get caught in the judging of the judging. So the trick is to try to not take it personally. And if possible, to try and bring a sense of humor to this tendency. So judgment is one particular manifestation of ill will. And there are other forms, frustration or impatience or resentment or blame or self-blame. And at times we might need to try to apply the antidote of goodwill to the ill will. And just again a caveat here that when we talk about ill will or anger, we're not saying that anger is inherently wrong or bad and something we have to get rid of as soon as possible. As Oren said this afternoon, it's part of our biological survival system. It helps protect us from danger. So under certain conditions, anger will come up. And the challenge is to try to know it for what it is and to not act unconsciously from it and create more suffering for ourselves and others. What we can do is try to meet it, to hold it with kindness. And then hopefully later when we have the right conditions, we can explore it to see what can I learn from this energy and how can I channel it in ways that are skillful rather than harmful. And just to say, dealing with anger could be an entire Dharma talk. And so for now, I'm just going to have to leave it at that and perhaps come back to it later because I want to... uh, at least talk about the other three hindrances briefly. So uh, sense desire has its root in greed, ill will has its root in hatred, and the next three of sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse and doubt are all different forms of ignorance or delusion, different flavors of not seeing clearly, disconnection and distraction. So sloth and torpor, for example, are old-fashioned English words for dullness. You could think of sloth as the kind of sluggishness of the body and torpor as the lethargy in the mind. And you're probably familiar with the animal, the sloth, that really embodies this energy. There's another animal, because I spend quite a lot of time in Australia, I think of the koala, as the local equivalent of a sloth, because if you've seen nature documentaries, you might see them sitting high up in a tree and they just kind of, (laughs) they've got like just enough energy to not fall out, but really that's about (laughs) it. Not a lot going on there. And I know I've had that experience in my own practice of not falling off my cushion, but only just. So again, to notice there can be a whole spectrum with this one too, from the total unconsciousness of sleep 
just through to that slight feeling of drowsiness or spaciness. And unlike the first three hindrances, this one sometimes can be experienced as quite pleasant. So it's important to be on the lookout for it. It can also show up sometimes as that energy of withdrawal, of disconnection or avoiding or escapism. So sometimes we feel this sudden urge just to go back to bed when we happen to have touched into something difficult in the practice. Not a coincidence, even though we might like to convince ourselves that it is. And sometimes this urge gets rationalized as a form of self-compassion. You've been working hard today. How many hours of metta have you done? It's just a kind thing. They keep talking about kindness. You know? Wouldn't hurt to take a little nap right now. But check it out, because sometimes that might actually be the skillful thing to do. But notice what happens when I do take a nap. How is the quality of the heart and the mind afterwards? Was it useful? Was it not? Just to know. So sloth and torpor is really an imbalance of energy on the side of not enough energy. And then the fourth one is when we tend to swing in the opposite direction into restlessness and worry. And this is when the energy of the body and the mind gets really jumpy. The the body just feels like we're jumping out of our skin. And the mind just will not settle Sometimes it gets caught in endless, obsessive, compulsive loops, the same thoughts going over and over and over again. So these are forms of um, restlessness and worry. And if we're caught in that mental looping, the trick is to try and come back to the body, to withdraw the energy from that obsessive mental activity and just come back to the body, because the body is always present here and now. Just knowing the simple rhythm of breathing in and breathing out can help calm that energy. We can even consciously incline ourselves in that direction. So in the classical instructions for mindfulness of breathing, one aspect of it is to, quote, calm the bodily formations. So some teachers uh, suggest we can even drop in the word calm at the end of the out-breath as an invitation to incline the heart and mind in that direction. So sometimes these different forms of agitation can uh, give rise to the fifth and the final hindrance, which is the hindrance known as skeptical doubt. And this is the hindrance that just keeps us second-guessing and undermining everything we do, every choice we make. Sometimes it manifests, again, as the mind going into sort of hyperdrive and overthinking, or as one friend of mine says, paralysis by analysis. Should I do meta? Should I do mindfulness of breathing? Should I be calm? Should I be more energized? Should I go for a walk? Should I sit still? You know, just that sort of uncertainty that we end up not doing anything. And on retreat, this uh, doubt can show up in many different ways. It can show up as doubt in our own capacity to do the practice. So we might tell ourselves, well, maybe it works for everyone else here and everyone else over the last 2,600 years, but I'm uniquely defective and I just don't have what it takes. Or we might start to doubt the teachers, wondering, 
who are these people anyway? They seem pretty ordinary to me. We doubt the teachings, the teachings themselves. We hear these archaic words like sloth and torpor, and we think, well, this is the 21st century. This was developed in India 2,600 years ago. And all these numbered lists, they really need to update their presentation style. <laughs> so this hindrance is referred to as doubt, as skeptical doubt, because it's sometimes uh, confused with genuine inquiry. But genuine inquiry, it has an energy to it of curiosity and of interest and alertness, and it's onward leading. It helps us get more clarity. Whereas doubt is that questioning that just feels undermining and deadening. And even though it's undermining and deadening, sometimes these thoughts are quite seductive. They can really have the power to pull us away from our capacity to act for our own welfare and the welfare of others. So at times we might recognize that slightly cynical, sophisticated voice that asks, really, what do you think you're doing here anyway? I mean, what's the point of all this? What good is it going to do you or anyone else? Your family already think you're weird. Wouldn't you be better off just having a nice vacation somewhere instead of putting yourself through hell like this? Sounds like maybe you recognize that one. So again, the antidote, first step is to recognize it. Oh, it's doubt. Doubt feels like this. And if it's really strong, it can be helpful to talk to a teacher or a good spiritual friend so that they can help you clarify questions. Because it's true, you know, one of the challenges that the Buddha recognized with this practice, he referred to it as swimming upstream. We are often going against mainstream values or lack of values. So it's not surprising that at times we might feel doubt. And that's one reason why it's so important to have contact with others who are interested in the practice to give and to receive moral support. And again, this is an aspect of taking refuge in Sangha that I referred to the other night. So that's a fairly brief overview of these five hindrances and the ways that they might show up on retreat. And if you've recognized any of them in your own practice today, that's great because we really, the first step really is to be able to recognize these energies. So it can even be helpful with that question that I ask, what's the relationship to my experience? What's the attitude in my mind to even run through the list? Is there some sensual desire? Is there some ill will? Is it sloth and torpor? Is there restlessness and worry? Is there skeptical doubt? Or is it perhaps what we know as a multiple hindrance attack? Because these ones tend to not come nice one at a time. They tend to bring each other. They hunt in packs, basically. (laughs) And if you've experienced that, you'll know that when you're in the middle of a multiple hindrance attack, it's very difficult to bring awareness to it. So sometimes uh, when that happens, I suggest to people a practice that I call post-mortem mindfulness. And this is a little bit of a joke. It's referring to going back over something that's played out to see if we can get more clarity about it. 
Now, as we know, mindfulness is normally in the present moment. But sometimes when something has gone awry in some way, it can be helpful to go back and see if we can trace what just happened. And sometimes we can actually catch that first trigger thought or that first trigger emotion that led to the whole cascade of the hindrances. And with that information, we can be on the lookout for that trigger again so that we lessen the likelihood of getting caught in quite the same way. So the first step in working with any of these hindrances is to know when they're present with this attitude of kindness. And in that spirit, I really appreciate uh, an English Dharma teacher, Rob Berbea, who reframes the hindrances as, quote, manifestations of our humanity. I don't know about for you, but for me that has a really different flavor. And sometimes people will come into meetings with me and say, I've just been manifesting so much humanity today. (laughs) So it's helpful to be able to have humor with these things because they really are universal. They're not personal. And the Buddha was very explicit about this, that the mind is visited by adventitious defilements. That means they're not inherent to who we are. But it's so easy to think the hindrances have to be got rid of as quickly as possible. They're wrong and bad. I'm wrong and bad. My practice is wrong and bad. So although we want to help them release, if we're judging them, often that makes them stick around longer. So I want to just um, highlight that developing a skillful relationship to these qualities is quite an art. It's a really powerful skill of the practice. And sometimes with uh, mindfulness becoming more mainstream, we can get the idea that I'm supposed to just be with things, just be with it, just be with it, just be with it. Don't try to change it in any way. But there are certain aspects of our experience that are skillful to change and learning how to release the hindrances so that we can strengthen qualities like the Brahma-viharas is very important. So I'd like to talk a little bit more broadly now, not just about the five classical hindrances, but some of the emotions that often come up during our Brahma-vihara practice, particularly the afflictive emotions. So it's very common that we sit down with the intention to generate kindness and friendliness and instead we find ourselves just lost in petty resentments and irritation and frustration and jealousy and boredom and sexual fantasies and blankness and numbness and aversion and on and on and on. And some of these emotions can get quite intense. And we can easily start to wonder, what are we doing wrong? But this is actually, as I've been emphasizing, a normal and an expected part of the practice. So for me, as I said earlier, in my own practice, I really struggled with metta. And it was a huge relief to eventually hear one teacher describe metta as a purification practice. And what I understood from that, the way it was explained, is that This is basically a euphemism to say that these practices are designed to bring up our stuff. 
are designed to show us what gets in the way. And again, this is good news. It's not comfortable, it's not pleasant. But unless we can see what gets in the way of metta, we can't do anything about it. So metta is a purification practice. And there are these natural cycles of what some teachers refer to as purity and purification. And the purification stage is when we have to deal with these various afflictive emotions. And when we've learned how to meet them with a little bit more space, a little bit more kindness, allowed them to release, often then we experience a phase of purity. And this comes as a sense of ease and relief and understanding, perhaps. So, for example, we might find ourselves uh, putting in a great deal of effort to work through an afflictive emotion, and then suddenly there's a phase of relative clarity and of openness and of calm, perhaps even a few moments of bliss. And then the natural tendency is to think, finally, now I'm getting somewhere. This is great. I can cruise for the rest of the retreat. Hmm. So if you've been there, you know what usually happens next. You know, one teacher says, there's nothing that ruins the rest of your retreat quite so much as having a good sitting. <laughs> so in these cycles of purity and purification, we can see that. that The very next sitting, or perhaps a couple of hours later, or the next day, it feels like everything falls apart. And we're back in those states of misery that we thought we just escaped But this is just the natural rhythm of the heart opening and closing and of these cycles of purity and purification. And if we don't cling to either of these pendulum swings, then we save ourselves a lot of distress. So part of the trick is just to know, okay, now we're over here. Okay, now we're over here. Okay, now it seems like we're back here. Can we just go with the flow, so to speak, and over time, that non-reactivity helps the pendulum swings get a little less wild. And having said that, as we continue to pay attention to the challenging times, sometimes we do come into contact with afflictive emotions that don't feel like they move through very quickly, that really feel quite entrenched or stuck or deep in some way. So I'd like to just offer a few suggestions on how to work with these more entrenched, difficult emotions. Perhaps familiar forms of grief, or anger, or lust, or anxiety, or fear. And the first thing to keep in mind when we're working with them is to try to stay in balance to really give ourselves permission to take it easy with them. Throughout the Buddha's teachings, he kept emphasizing the middle way, the middle way between extremes. So in relation to difficult emotions, this means, on the one hand, not avoiding, ignoring, repressing, or denying them, but on the other hand, not feeding them, not indulging them, not getting overwhelmed and lost in them. And to find that balance, we need to really listen to our own selves, to listen to our own capacity, and to pay attention to the external context that we're in. 
So to know when is an appropriate time to perhaps explore this emotion a little more fully, and when do I just not have the resources or there's too much else going on at the moment. But if the timing feels right, we might want to actually take a session of meditation to investigate more directly what, how these afflictive thoughts and emotions are getting so stuck. And by investigation, I don't mean that sort of habitual intellectual analysis. So it's not so much going into all the details of our childhood history and thinking about everything we're going to need to talk to with our therapist in our next session. It's more about bringing the awareness down into the body and finding a more intuitive wisdom. And for myself, I find this uh, easier if I can stay close to the body and to notice when the attention is starting to go up into the head and to keep inviting it to come back down into the body. And it's not easy to do this because usually when we come into contact with a difficult emotion of some kind, the first impulse is to tighten up around it, to grip, to contract, to resist. Oh, my grief again. Oh, here comes anger or whatever it might be, which only makes the experience even more uncomfortable. But with practice, we can start to notice that resistance, that first moment of reactivity, very directly in the body. And we all have our own symptoms of this. Perhaps the jaw clenches, or the shoulders hunch a little, or the hands form slight fists, or there's many different ways. We might feel heat in the face, or hollowness in the belly, those kind of things. And as an antidote to that first initial impulse of contraction or resistance, I like to use a a mantra that I borrowed from the Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck. And she calls this mantra ABC. So you can't get much more simple than that. Hopefully it's easy to remember in times of difficulty. It stands for A, bigger container. Making A, bigger container around whatever the difficulty is. So we feel that habitual contraction in the body, the heart, or the mind. And we try to remember, okay, A, B, C, can I make a bigger container? And you might literally do it by sitting up straighter, as I just did, okay. I might take a deeper breath and open my shoulders and open my arms and really breathe in and out more fully. I might make space in the jaw. If it's really intense, I might open my eyes and connect with a bigger container of the whole room. I might look out of the window and see the bigger uh, perspective of the sky. Or if you're a visual person, you might imagine surrounding the tightness with a a warmth or a golden light or a fine vibrational energy. So it's just a creative way, to any way you can, to make space around that tightening. So the analogy is that when we contract around a difficulty, it's a little bit like putting a wild horse in a small corral. It goes crazy and then the energy seems very intense. But if we let that same horse into a bigger field, 
into a meadow, the energy is still the same, but it feels much more manageable because of the space around it. So ABC is that invitation just to create a bigger container. And sometimes that letting go of resistance helps the intensity to reduce and we can stay with it until it passes away of its own accord. At other times, though, we might find that uh, we're in danger of getting lost in the emotion. And so another strategy is what is referred to as touch and go. And with this, we touch into the difficulty. Just know it for a few moments, acknowledge it, and then metaphorically or literally go, move the attention somewhere else, preferably to something that's either pleasant or neutral. This is not cheating, as people often think, because if these emotions are um, more habitual or recurrent, it's probably not your only chance to, to get to deal with it. And having what I call homeopathic doses of them is what helps to strengthen our emotional immune system so that over time we're able to stay with these difficult emotions for longer and longer. But again, you know, we've been emphasizing this analogy of least resistance and gradually building the muscles. So we start with 5-pound or 10-pound weights, not 100 pounds. In the same way with difficult emotions, we just expose ourselves to them for maybe 30 seconds in the beginning. If we're doing this practice at home, we might literally set a timer. Okay, five seconds. Shame, let's do it. (laughs) Bell rings, thank you, bow. And then you go and play with a dog or call a friend or take a shower or go for a walk or whatever helps you feel balanced and refreshed and nourished. So this ability to take a strategic withdrawal is one of the skills of the practice. And again, if it's done with mindfulness, with awareness, it's not cheating. If it's just a knee-jerk, oh, get me out of here, where's a tub of ice cream? That's not so helpful. But if it's okay, loneliness, grief, pain... Yep, it's intense, I feel you, yep, and that's my limit for today. And then perhaps you have some ice cream. So it's up to you. (laughs) Key is the consciousness, the awareness, the mindfulness of what you're doing and what is the effect on the system. If you can't find a physical experience that helps you to come back to balance, you might bring to mind an iconic memory of some kind of a time perhaps when you really felt safe and whole and at ease and in more of your true who you truly are so if you have a memory of that kind when there are difficulties you might like to bring that to mind particularly with things like anxiety so if you can remember a time when there was non-anxiety perhaps a time when you were Maybe you hiked a mountain and you got to some high point and you really felt this sense of strength and this sense of perspective, the view. Perhaps a time when you were floating down a river on an inner tube or a kayak. Just any time you can think of when there was real ease and safety. Connecting with that memory of a time. 
And sometimes even that is not available to us. So at those times when you really do feel that there's some sense of overwhelm, you might need to just come back to a hand on the heart, a hand on the belly. It's okay. It's okay to not be okay. Perhaps that momentary flashing on self-compassion. So again, we might not have time or energy to do all the phrases, but just that placing the hand on the heart and connecting to our own aliveness and flashing on that moment of self-compassion. If it feels appropriate, we can use the phrases, inviting that willingness to be aware of this pain and to care about this pain and to wish that it might release and to wish that we might know peace. So these are just a few strategies that have been helpful in my own practice and as a reminder about why we're doing all this. There's another slogan that I found a few years ago that really helped to put all this into perspective for me. And that's, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And for me, that was so illuminating to see all of these things where I'd think, if only it wasn't for this, then I'd be able to practice. If only this wasn't going on, then I'd be able to practice. If this was a bit more like this, then I'd be able to practice. But if it's in the way, it is the way. So as we, our capacity to work with these difficult emotions increases, we might even at times find a, a kind of appreciation for suffering. This is not masochism, but it's a gratitude for the opportunity that these obstacles give us to really strengthen our inner resources, strengthen our heart-mind in ways that couldn't happen in any other way. And again, the good news is that the more we're able to release these afflictive emotions, the more space there is for these Brahma-Vihara qualities of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity to really fill our hearts and minds. And just to, to name that um, often because of this biological hardwiring to pay more attention to the unpleasant than the pleasant, and when we come to retreats like this and we hear endless talks about the hindrances, we can kind of get habituated to thinking about our practice in terms of what's wrong, difficult, challenging, painful, and so on. So in the group meetings, I've been inviting people to notice not only the challenges, but the rewards. What's going well? What can you find to appreciate about your practice? This is because so often we, we tend to even just skip over those moments when the afflictive states are not present. So even right now, you might notice, is there some lessening of the afflictive states? Are are there some aspects of your experience right now that feel pleasant, that are skillful? To notice those, as well as the headache, or the boredom, or the sleepiness, or the irritation. Because if we pay more refined awareness to our experience, we might notice more and more of the full spectrum of it and not just what's difficult. 
So learning to recognize times of ease and peace and freedom, of kindness, of compassion and joy and equanimity, is really a huge skill in the practice. And a few years ago I read that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's usually translated as meditation, more literally has a quality of getting used to it. And I love that, that meditation is about getting used to it getting used to these perhaps unfamiliar states of momentary ease. And and more we do that, the more we learn to recognize these moments of ease, of freedom, the more they start to become more and more the default setting of the heart and the mind. And this is the potential freedom that all of these teachings are pointing to. It happens on deeper and deeper levels culminating in the complete freedom of heart and mind that's known as Nibbana or Nirvana. So may we all learn to recognize and free ourselves from the afflictive emotions and may we strengthen these heart qualities of kindness and of compassion and of joy and equanimity so that we can experience the true freedom of the Buddha. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.